Hello and welcome back to Celluloid Junkies. We've been away for a while, but what better time to return than when we're self-isolating in our own homes and the outside world is in disarray. It may be the end of times, but it's just the beginning for us. My name is Damien Heath and I'm joined today by my most esoteric co-host, Luke Kane. How are you, Luke? Good, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Actually, you've just returned from a lengthy holiday overseas, Luke, and just in time, I heard this week that South Africa had closed their borders as a preventative measure. Yeah, we uh, just got under the wire. Just got under the wire. With our holiday, that was very lucky. Mm. As would be obvious to our listeners, cinema is a very important aspect of our lives. There are more important things in life, though. In the midst of the current pandemic, where people are losing large portions or all of their income or investments and wondering where their next meal or rent or mortgage payment is going to come from, where our most vulnerable friends and neighbours are at best unable to purchase toilet paper because it's been stripped bare from supermarket shelves, and at worst are facing a potential infection that could have disastrous outcomes including death, cinema seems to be low on the list of priorities. Many cinemas have closed completely, including almost all in both the United Kingdom and the United States. Here in Australia, seat separation has begun in order to enable cinemas to continue operating for the time being. But cinema and the film industry hold a special place, even in times of tragedy. During the Second World War, cinemas in the USA were one of the main sources of not only pro-American propaganda, but also news about the war. In the UK, cinema admissions during this time rose from 20 to 30 million, demonstrating the medium's ability to help everyday citizens escape the harsh realities outside. The world-famous Hollywood Canteen, headed by Betty Davis and John Garfield, opened in Los Angeles in 1942 and ran for three years, offering meals and entertainment to servicemen and women completely free of charge. Actor and comedian Bob Hope worked with the USO from 1941 until 1991, spending 48 Christmases overseas while he entertained the troops. And countless others since then have helped to raise awareness and critical funding for natural disasters, illnesses, minority rights, the ongoing climate emergency and more. In this trying time, take comfort from cinema. Streaming has changed the way we're able to digest the medium. It's now easier than ever to recreate the cinema experience in your own living room with a big screen TV and a subscription to Netflix or, if that's not your thing, Mubi, Shudder or the Criterion Channel. Cinema may be low priority, but it still has its place in the world to entertain, console, condole and support. It's still the best way to take your mind off of all the nasty things that can potentially confront us each and every day, and still one of the best ways to not only learn, but also to see the world from a different angle. So we just want to say, please continue to embrace cinema while the world turns to shit. And if they really want to like wallow in COVID, they can like have like an outbreak contagion marathon. Yeah, <clears throat> that's pretty good. Feel it even more intensely. I think you'll have to make that list on Letterboxd for people to access. I'm sure like 15 people already have. <laughs> now, let's take a look back at 2019 with our year in film. Certainly an interesting year in cinema. For the first time, a foreign language film was honoured with the Academy Award for Best Picture, that being South Korea's Parasite. On the flip side, Tom Hooper's Cats swept the Razzies with wins, or are they losses, for Worst Picture, Director, Screenplay, Supporting Actor and Supporting Actress. I know neither of us saw Cats, Luke, but what were your worst films of the year? Worst films? God, we're getting straight into it. Straight into the bad stuff so we can get it out of the way. Okay. 
I have got three that I thought were particularly stinky okay. this year. I see you've gone for stinky instead of rotten. Yes. <laughs> I think that's an Aussie thing. <laughs> I think we're more inclined to say stinky. But um, I went and saw Maleficent Mistress of Evil, not by choice, obviously. That was Hariz's pick. Mm-hmm. Hariz is my partner, but uh, he loved the first one. I actually thought the first one was okay. We went and saw that one and... Everything that's wrong with the Disney formula is in that film. And I think even he didn't like it, did he? No, not particularly. So when Hariz doesn't like a Disney film, I mean, that's that's when you know it's bad. You know you're in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. The other two that I really didn't like was actually one of them was really well reviewed and everybody loved it. It was called Knives Out, which is like a Agatha Christie type style murder mystery thing, except done as sort of like a satirical comedy. The performances are all very um, elaborate. They were false. And, you know, it was trying to set a certain tone, that kind of like hyperbolic, kind of crazy, kind of everyone's sort of left of center tone, but it all just felt very false and artificial. There were so many contrivances in the story. I didn't think it was particularly funny. It was definitely not thrilling. So, I, I mean, I walked out of that halfway and I was with two other people and we were all just like, no, let's go. I feel like that kind of filmmaking isn't really up your alley anyway. It isn't, although, you know, I, I really like certain murder mysteries that have that kind of... And I and I love satires, like I love Heathers, and I love when they're done well and done interestingly, but I just thought this was done in a very contrived way. Mm-hmm. And um, the other film that was a major disappointment was It Chapter 2, because the first film was, was good, it wasn't perfect, but it was good. And we, I think we both went into it chapter two, hoping that it would be on the same level. And it was just terrible. I mean, it started out reasonably well and horrific, but then when the first CGI scene happens about half hour in, then the rest of the movie becomes this CGI fest. There's no real characterization. It was just like going through the motions. It was so rote. And I just thought it was terrible. Yeah, definitely. I've got a couple of big disappointments more than movies I hated. Um, one of those was It Chapter 2. The other one was Pet Cemetery. So both of those are based on Stephen King novels as source material. But It Chapter 2, I thought the first It was a really engaging film, but this one, it had the far less interesting adult characters and... Yeah. The only good parts of it, Chapter 2, were really when they went back to the kids. But even that was more generic and telegraphed. I mean, very early in the film, you know that they need to find one special item each. And how many are there? Four or five of them? Yeah. So they need to find one special item each to help defeat it. So you know immediately what's going to happen next is, oh, here goes everybody's separate searches to go and find their one item and they're all going to encounter it. And that's exactly what happens. And it goes for a very laborious two hours doing just exactly what you expect it to do. And do you know, like in the first It, I mean, take all five and a half hours of the It films. The best five minutes of them were like pretty much the first scene in the first film. Yeah. And that was because, is it Peter Sarsgaard or Alex, Alex Skarsgård? I can't remember. One of the Skarsgårds mm. is so good and he's able to actually deliver a performance. Mm. The rest of the film, you don't really see him. He's kind of obscured behind all of this CGI. And so all of the impact is lost. Yeah. It never gets better than the first five minutes in the first film. I forget who that is. It's not Peter. And I don't know if it's Alex because... Let's just Google it. I think Alexander Skarsgård is the guy from um, Big Little Lies. You know the hot guy? Yeah, that's right. Who could forget? (laughs) Scary but hot. Bill Skarsgård. Bill, that's it. I'm not supposed to take stuff from strangers. 
Oh, well, I'm Pennywise and Sinclair. Pennywise? Yes, meet Georgie. Georgie, meet Pennywise. <laughs> now we aren't strangers, are we? Pet Cemetery, I thought, was a complete mess. It dropped almost everything that made the book so good and the original film so much fun, and everything it kept, it did worse. The only thing I liked in that entire movie was the last shot where the cat creeps up onto the car. Right. Where they, you know, they quarantined themselves in the car. Yeah. And the cat creeps up and looks at them. The little boy, I think it is. That was it. It's unfortunate because, was it John Lithgow? Yeah. He's usually so entertaining. And uh, unfortunately, not in this movie. Well, I don't think the fault lied with him, though. I think it was just a... It was, again, like a pretty... Di- just It was just diverting. It was very forgettable. didn't really bring anything new to it. I can't imagine wanting to watch it again. No. The other film that disappointed me, and this is why I say they're disappointments, because it certainly wasn't a bad film, but it was Terminator Dark Fate. As a huge fan of the series and the only person who enjoyed Terminator Genesis a few years ago, I was pretty excited about that returned pairing of Schwarzenegger and Linda Hamilton but the film was only mildly entertaining in a trip down memory lane kind of way. I wasn't surprised, but I was hoping for more. Yeah. I know you haven't seen that. <clears throat> no, I'm not going to bother. Balancing out the good of Parasite, winning Best Picture with the Bad, Avengers Endgame became the highest grossing film of all time, and eight other films passed the once highly regarded mark of a billion dollar gross. These included four sequels, two subpar live-action remakes of better animated films, another Marvel monstrosity, and Warner's Joker, the only one on the list actually worth mentioning by name. Luke, what were your general thoughts on the year? I thought it was a really good year, ultimately. I think it was a little disorienting because of how much changed in the industry, particularly in terms of, you know, major releases being released on streaming platforms. And so the occasion aspect of going to the movies was different it was lost because you were watching so many of these films in bed on a sunday you know in your in your pjs and i think i do like the ceremonial aspects of going to the cinema and organizing it and being with friends and certainly there was still that but it was just to a lesser degree mm. and um that's that's fine you know it's so convenient and i understand I thought it was a really good year for non-english films obviously, with Parasite, but also with films like Pain and Glory coming out and getting a wider audience than they would normally have. Just ultimately, I mean, my top five films, which we're going to go through, I gave all of them five stars. Mm. And I don't don't think I've done that in a long time. Mm. Uh, For me, it was a bit of a year of returns. I know I spoke to you about it after watching the movie, but Scarlett Johansson returned to form in a big way in Marriage Story and in Jojo Rabbit. And that's after years of slumming it in paycheck movies produced by Marvel. And just so listeners know, any chance I get, I'm going to bag Marvel movies. So just bear with me. But the girl who won my heart in Lost in Translation and then worked with Woody Allen on Matchpoint and Vicky Cristina Barcelona, it felt like she was finally back. But unfortunately, her next film was Black Widow, so I guess she was only visiting. Woody Allen himself returned to screens with A Rainy Day in New York finally getting a release in Poland in July and releases followed throughout Europe and parts of Asia and South America, Latin America. It was the opening night premiere at uh, the American Film Festival in France 
And even though it did middling business and had average reviews, it bodes well for his continued involvement in the film industry. Martin Scorsese returned to his roots with the mob epic The Irishman, reuniting with Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci and adding Al Pacino into the fold to, to bring us uh, what felt to me like a perfect companion piece to Goodfellas. Um, it was kind of akin to getting closure after too many years from a, a lover long since gone. And also, returning to our screens for the first time in 15 years was the DC Comics character The Joker, the film of which became the most successful R-rated release of all time. But not without controversy, Todd Phillips' film was an agonising reflection of our own society, and it's not a surprise that people were uncomfortable. And I think it will be debated for a long time as to whether Heath Ledger or Joaquin Phoenix performed the role better, but I think that's a pretty fun debate to have. What was the first film you watched in 2019? Oh god, you're like, you've changed the structure of this and I'm having to like flip through my notes to find these answers. Yeah. The first film was The Post by Steven Spielberg. Ah, was that the first time you'd watched that film? No. You'd seen it before. That's a few years old now, isn't it? Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. It was a rewatch. And that was January 1, I guess? I guess so, yeah. Yeah, mine was Roma, which I finally sat down and watched on Netflix on January 1. Right. So, good way to start the year. Uh, how many films did you watch overall? 265. Fuck me, Dad. 68. Oh, that's pathetic. Yeah, once again, I'm severely lacking in this department, but for the second year in a row, I did play more Dead by Daylight than you. <laughs> There's a feather in your cap. <laughs> As we said last year, both of us log all of the films that we watch, or in my case, all of the films that I remember, on Letterboxd, which if you're a movie fan and haven't joined, you should definitely get on to. At the end of the year, they give you a nice summary of your viewing in much the same way that Spotify do for your music listening. They'll tell you how much you've watched, where those films came from, who they were made by, and a whole lot more. So for a data geek or a movie fan, it's a lot of fun. So Luke, according to Letterboxd, what was the most obscure film, in other words, the least seen film that you watched in 2019? Mine was Family Demons. Ah, where your sister starred. Yeah, um, I was actually a production assistant on that film. Mm. It's directed by Ursula Dabrowski, and she's actually a friend. And uh, I watched it because Hariz, my partner, hadn't seen it. And he knows Cass. Cass is the lead in it. It's my sister. So um, I thought it would be fun for him to watch it. Holds up really well. I still think it's, uh, I mean, it's hard for me to be objective, obviously, um, because I really like Ursula Dabrowski. I think that was her pseudonym. I think now she goes by her real name, Sue Brown. But I really like Sue's point of view and perspective. I think she's a really talented filmmaker. And obviously I enjoy watching Cass in it and it brings back memories and everything. But I think objectively it's actually a pretty good creepy film. I think um, people who watch it, people who are horror fans who watch it generally like it. Oh, yeah. Family Demons. Yeah. Um, certainly if anybody's, if people haven't seen it, I believe, I'm not sure where Family Demons is available, but I believe Inner Demon is on Shudder, the streaming service. So if you have access to that, feel free to try out that filmmaker. Um, mine was Shock and Awe from 2017, which was seen by 846 people, which is ridiculously, though, this film was directed by Rob Reiner. It starred Reiner, James Marsden, Woody Harrelson, Jack. Jessica Biel, Mila Jovovic, and Tommy Lee Jones, and it just never found an audience. Um, I really liked it, but I, I find it weird that that film never found an audience. I've never even heard of it until now. Right, there you go. <laughs> how, how, what did you like? What did you give it? Star rating? I think you gave it three and a half. Okay, so you didn't love it. I thought it was good. Yeah, very interesting. 
What was the lowest rated film that you watched in 2019? This is the lowest rated film you watched in 2019 from any year. So not from last year, not necessarily from last year. Well, I just got it straight off the, it's in the letterbox thing. It's yeah. The Curse of La Lorna, which oh, yeah. was directed by Michael Chaves. So that is um, one of the kind of spin-offs to the Conjuring universe. I think the director video spin-off. And I, I watched it in a hotel room late at night when I was in Sydney there seeing uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's. Oh, yes. And uh, I don't even I have no memory of it whatsoever. You can't remember what you rated it? I think I gave it like one and a half or two. It yeah. was it was just bleh. Mine was Friday the Thirteenth Part Five: A New Beginning from nineteen eighty five, which on Letterboxd is rated two point four out of five, which isn't terrible, but it is arguably the worst film in the entire series. That's the one that revolves around the copycat Jason, so it doesn't even have the real Jason in it. Ah, oh, the copycat Jason. Copycat Jason, because Jason died in Part Four and doesn't come back until Part Six, but they wanted to make it Part Five. And so they just made somebody who dressed up as Jason and killed like Jason. Why didn't they just use Jason? I'm sure they could have come up with some stupid reason to get him back to life. Well, that's what we wonder these days. You know, uh, hindsight is twenty twenty. God, no wonder Friday fans were up in arms. <laughs> what was your favourite movie-watching moment of the year? Well, it's a movie that we're going to talk about in more detail later, uh, but it was Eduardo at the Wash Basin. <laughs> yeah, I actually mentioned that later. So <laughs> that was your favourite movie-watching moment of the year. Yep. Okay. It showed that the moving image is such a perfect conduit for expressing sensuality Mm -hmm. and that it is ultimately a sensual medium. But also because it was like really powerfully evocative of what it means to have that first sexual awakening Mm -hmm. as a kid. You know, when the kid passes out from it, it's just such an arresting, extraordinary moment. My favourite cinema experience of the year was watching Joker. That's mostly because the film holds a lot more weight when you're with an audience. uh, And it's interesting to see the reactions of other people to what is essentially a commentary on people as a whole. I know you tweeted about a particular scene in Joker and the reaction of those in the session that we were in, which sparked quite a response in the Twitter sphere. Yes, I don't even want to talk about it. (laughs) Yeah, the Twitter sphere is um, quite negative when it wants to be. Yes, they are. They're brutal. My favourite movie-watching moment, though, as a whole from 2019, was when you and me and our friend Jen and your parents all finally succumbed to Jen's incessant nagging and watched Paul Verhoeven's Showgirls one evening. (laughs) (laughs) That film is so bad. Not so bad that it's good, but certainly the experience of watching it with people who share your sense of humour is unforgettable. And there is just that scene. I like nice tits. (laughs) I always have. How about you? I like having nice tits. How do you like having them? Long pause, leans in dramatically. What do you mean? (laughs) How do you like having them? That is so weird, that scene. It is, seriously, it is one of the... I know she's getting at, you know, what do you like doing to dress up your tits? What do you like doing, you know, sexually? And, you know, I know it's this kind of big sleep style double entendre. But it fails. It is some of the worst writing I think I've ever seen in a movie, that scene. Like when she leads to say, what do you mean? It's like, yes, what does any of this mean? I I remember we were all watching it one night and we cracked up laughing and we watched that scene so many times. We (laughs) rewinded and watched it so many times. It was really funny. For the Academy, here are the films that made the greatest impact this year. I think the time has come now to discuss our top five films of 2019. Okay, well, I'll just scroll all the way up to the top of the page. 
At this point in these episodes, we'd usually discuss the Academy Award nominations for Best Picture, but of course we're a little bit late on that this year, so we won't be doing it. Being named in our top five is arguably far more important anyway, so you're not missing anything. Just to recap the last couple of years where we've done these Our Year in Film episodes, in 2017 we both named Darren Aronofsky's Mother as our best film, and in 2018 I chose Yorgos Lanthimos' The Favourite, and you chose Paul Thomas Anderson's Phantom Thread. So personally I'd say this year's best film doesn't measure up to either of those films that I named in previous years for me. How do you feel about that? I feel it does. So you feel that your top film measures up with Mother and Phantom Thread? Yes. Okay. Throughout the entire year, I was waiting and waiting and waiting. And it was the same thing last year. And finally, The Favourite came along and I was like, that's it. It's like this hallelujah moment of this great movie that really spoke to me. I didn't get that moment this year. I got great movies, but I didn't get that moment. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, Before we begin with the top five, are there any films you'd like to mention that just missed the cut for you? Yeah, like I said, I thought it was a really good year and there are quite a few films that I would have loved to have been in my top five that weren't. Probably the one I would mention right up front is Uncut Gems, which is the film that came out on streaming services, I think Netflix, with Adam Sandler. It's about this sort of shady diamond dealer and him trying to get through... I don't know, maybe just a few days where sort of the, this level of intensity is on him and everyone's trying to get at him. And it's really, really good. It's kind of very tense, but also really funny, very real. It's kind of got this gritty, almost like Paul Greengrass style of how it's filmed. It was very good. Adam Sandler is one of those actors, like Jim Carrey threatened to become. Adam Sandler has an amazing capacity to do kind of off-kilter drama like Uncut Gems and like Punch Drunk Love. And Jim Carrey kind of threatened to do that when he was doing Man on the Moon and The Truman Show and a few other films. I'm not sure if he ever got there as successfully as Adam Sandler has now, but it's it's so funny to know where they both came from, these absurd comedies like Ace Ventura and Billy Madison and Happy Gilmore and those things where you would look at those people and you would say, I never want to see those people again in my life. And then suddenly, 20 years later, they're making movies that they're pretty spectacular in. Yeah, I think Adam Sandler has substance and depth. He has the face for it as well. It's like it's a waste to put Adam Sandler's face into banal comedies. Jim Carrey had it too, and still does. I mean, he did films like Eternal Sunshine. He was great in it. There are some actors like that that don't have it, and they are unfortunately just relegated to crass kind of comedies. Yeah. But Adam Sandler's definitely not one of them. No. The other films I'll mention just really briefly are Dark Waters, which is the Todd Haynes movie with Mark Ruffalo, and that's about um, bringing down a chemical company that's poisoning the water. It's sort of like a very straight-faced Aaron Brockovich. It's really, really smart, really well made. The King, I absolutely loved. I know that that was a pretty divisive film, but I loved it. I thought it was amazing. I thought Timothy Chalamet was great and Joel Edgerton. Ad Astra, I thought was really beautiful, quiet, reflective film. Another film that you didn't mention, interestingly, in your kind of summation of the year, and it was such an event, was Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Tarantino's film. You know, this film, I think more so than his last few, which have sort of been revisionist period films. And this is too, except it's a period that's far more accessible and kind of lives inside the pop culture memory, which is, of course, the 60s and the Charles Manson cult and the murder of Sharon Tate. 
I'm not a Tarantino fan. I know you aren't one either, but I really liked this movie. I think it was saved in large part by the appeal of DiCaprio and Brad Pitt and their pairing is so, it works so well. Also the fact that we love movies about movies and this is absolutely that, you know, it, it, it even recreates scenes from famous films from the 50s and 60s. All right, what's the matter, partner? It's official, old buddy. Well, it has been. What are you talking about? What did that guy tell you? He told me the goddamn truth is what he told me. Whoa, whoa. Hey. I'm sorry about that. I'm sorry about that. Here, put these on. Don't cry in front of the Mexicans. And the uh, last film that I would say that I thought was really good this year, which I don't think many people saw, but by all means go out and find it if you can. It's a movie called Loose, and it is the sort of film that you'll put on and you will have no idea where it's going every minute until it finishes. It's kind of nerve-wracking. It also has something to say. It suffers a little bit at the end by becoming a little bit condescending, kind of lets go of the characters and becomes a film that has something political to say, and that's a shame. But for the most part, it's a it's a really gripping, interesting thriller. So I had Loose in my list as well. That's directed by Julius Owner, and it's uh, spelled L-U-C-E for people who are looking for it. The other one that I had that um, I was really sorry that I couldn't fit any higher was The Irishman, um, which is a great movie. Uh, it just didn't make the cut for me in the end. There was uh, only five films that I could fit in. And I had James Gray's Ad Astra, as you did, and I had Scott Z. Burns' The Report, which I thought was a really good yarn. I did have Robert Eggers' The Lighthouse up there as well, but uh, I had somewhat mixed feelings about it after how good The Witch was, so I'm still a bit iffy on that one. Yeah. You actually just reminded me of another one I'd just quickly like to mention. I'm pretty sure it was last year, was Official Secrets with Kira Knightley. Mm. That was my favourite yarn of 2019. <laughs> very, very good movie. A yarn is just like a really straightforward, I think mostly American story. Political. Yeah, usually political or criminal yeah. in nature. The best example of a yarn and the the film that spawned it was um that hillary swank movie that i think had sam rockwell yeah where she's like a trial lawyer or something so he's been convicted of something and she studies to be his lawyer or something for like 10 years finally gets her brother out of jail conviction (laughs) is it called conviction 2010 yeah Okay, so if you want to know what a yarn is, just go and watch Conviction. Although this year, Clint Eastwood released Richard Jewell, which is on the same kind of wavelength. When her brother was convicted of murder... I can't spend the rest of my life in here. Betty Ann Waters began an impossible 18-year struggle to set him free. I'm going to stop by trying to get a BA after I finally take the stupid GED test. After that, I'll apply to law school. But you just have to promise me that you'll never give up. I don't really have time for a friend right now. We're going to be friends, because we're the only ones in class who've been through puberty. My uh, brother Kenny, he's been in prison for 12 years, life without parole. Wow. And I'm going to find a way to get him out. Mom? Oh, my baby sister, best of us! I understand, but you have to sit down. I'm so proud of you. This woman actually went to law school to save her brother. He's her only client. How long will it take you to make yourself look like a lawyer? We're talking about evidence at 16 years old. Miller caught Nancy Taylor, had it out for Kenny. They lied, saying they had all this evidence. 
to put an innocent man in prison. I am sorry you have wasted your life on this. You gotta move on. It's over, honey. I'm never getting out of here. You're innocent. Are you sure about that? There is one thing we haven't tried yet. If we can DNA test the murderer's blood, it'll prove Kenny's innocent. I'm not doing it. That's what we've been waiting for. It's gonna test positive. I'll find a way that I'll trust them. You do it, or I'll kill you. Got your sister and your lawyer talking. This fall. The A's don't like to admit they put an innocent person in prison. I did not come this far after all this time. Experience the extraordinary journey. There are forces greater than you, and you may not win. Of how far we go. Time for you to start living your life. This is my life. To fight for our family. You guys would do this for each other, right? If Ben tried to go to law school for me, I'd die an old man in prison. You'd do it for me? I would. Love you. Love you. Conviction. So let's count down our best films of the year from number five to number one. And I think we maybe haven't seen each other's number five films. So I'll go first and tell you that my fifth best film of the year was first time director Joe Talbot's The Last Black Man in San Francisco. And for me, this continues in the really great tradition of recent African-American cinema over the last half decade. Specifically, I'm talking about Barry Jenkins' Moonlight and If Beale Street Could Talk. Like those films, this is a gentle, almost poetic, but equally simmering commentary on black culture. The film, which was partly funded through a Kickstarter campaign, is a semi-autobiographical story dealing with Jimmy Fales, the actor using his real name, looking to reclaim the Victorian house that he believes his grandfather built in the Fillmore district of San Francisco back in the 1940s. It explores themes of racial injustice and the effects of gentrification on people of colour, as well as toxic masculinity and broken homes in those same communities. Jimmy Fales and his co-star Jonathan Majors are exceptional in their roles, and Talbot has created a meandering but never unfocused film, and it's backed by what I think is the best original score of the year and was promoted with the best trailer. What did you have as your number five, Luke? I know you haven't seen uh, Last Black Man, have you? No, I want to. I did start it on the plane while I was traveling, but for some reason I think I must have been tired or something. I just felt I couldn't give it proper attention. So I will see it. Uh, My number five film was 1917, which was directed by Sam Mendes. That was the film that everybody thought was tipped to win Best Picture. It's definitely like the Oscar gloss release of last year. It's based on, uh, well, it's set during the First World War and it's based on reminiscences from Sam Mendes' grandfather, Alfred Mendes, who was only 16 when he enlisted. He was haunted his whole life by his experiences as a messenger on the Western Front. And the film has the same sort of droning energy of Dunkirk. It's more like a thriller than a traditional war film. The story is that two young Lance Corporals are sent on a mission to deliver an urgent message to an adjoining battalion to call off an appending assault that the Allies know they can't win because the Germans are a step ahead of them. Most of our listeners will probably know it was shot by uh, Richard Deakins, so obviously it looks incredible. It's made up of only 20 or so shots that have been very carefully edited together to give the impression of one long winding shot. Uh, And I think that that technique actually really works to sustain the tension and keep us feeling that we're in real time with these characters. I saw it on the big screen by myself in Cape Town. And you know, when you watch a movie by yourself, you have a better chance of liking it 
for some reason. I don't know why that is, but I've always found that to be true, that if I'm not conscious of somebody else's energy around me, that I can lose myself more thoroughly. I think it's a shame that it was sort of dressed up as an Oscar bait film because it gives the impression to people that, oh, it's going to be one of these, you know, good for you rather than good, actually good films. But I guarantee if you put it on, you'll watch the whole thing and you'll be riveted by it. Everything you've said about that movie, and I haven't seen it yet, everything you've said about that movie then reminds me of War Horse. Really? Yeah. Just, I guess, the single purpose of this person in the war... Yeah, I would say that's probably a fair comparison, although I wouldn't say it has the same sentimentality as Warhorse. And Warhorse obviously doesn't feel like a thriller, really. Yeah. Has exciting Spielbergian moments. This film's a lot more rough and a lot more vicious and um, a much truer account of the horror of war than Warhorse was. My fourth best film of the year was Todd Phillips' Joker. What was yours? Todd Phillips' Joker. We agree. Yes, we do. Get away from that man. It's okay, I'm a good guy. What are you doing? Who are you? I'm here to see Mr. Wayne. Well, you shouldn't be speaking to his son. Why did you give him these flowers? No, they're not real. It's magic. I'm just trying to make him smile. Well, it's not funny, is it? Do I need to call the police? No, please. My mother's name is Penny. Penny Fleck. She used to work here years ago. Can you please tell Mr. Wayne I need to see him? You are her son. Yeah. Did you know her? For a long time, I this was um, probably going to be the best film of the year for both of us. But I'm personally glad that some better films came along. And while Joker is great, I don't think I would have enjoyed putting it as my number one film. I agree. It really lives or dies on Joaquin Phoenix's performance. I mean, if that had been bad the film would have flopped. But his performance is utterly superb. Definitely, for me, it was the best male performance of the year, and that's saying something because I thought there were some others who came quite close. It was a really standout year for male leads in the end. Joaquin Phoenix, of course, became the second actor to win an Academy Award for this particular role, following on from the late Heath Ledger, and I alluded to the question of who performed the role better, but I'm going to ask you, do you have an opinion? Joaquin Phoenix had so much more to do Heath Ledger was really only in a handful of scenes in The Dark Knight. They were incredible, those scenes, but I think that this demanded so much more of an actor. Hmm. I think in a purely comic book sense, Heath Ledger would take the award because he was far more theatrical. Yeah. But in a in a dramatic sense, Joaquin Phoenix did the better performance. I mean, Todd Phillips has been very vocal about what his intentions were in this film. He wanted to approach a comic book film from an indie perspective. And obviously the film's an exploration of mental illness and social apathy towards mental illness and maybe social ignorance toward it. Uh, Stylistically, the film tries to emulate the gritty character studies of the 70s, like Taxi Driver, with limited success, I would say. But the reason that it's on my list, the reason it's number four, and I know this film was very polarizing and some people hated it. Some people hated it because of what it was, other people hated it because of their loyalty to DC and their feelings are all mixed up with DC. But I thought it was great because of how effectively it reflected this sense of sour masculine rage that's really out in the world at the moment. 
and the way that it gets behind the disturbed individual and embraces his anarchy without any rational detachment. It's sort of unapologetically angry film, and I loved that it had that feeling and that vibe to it, and it was really the only major release that had something to say. I mean, it was the fourth highest grossing film in Australia. The other three were Endgame and Frozen 2. And the other three, like the list I gave before, were probably bullshit. Yeah, and Lion King. So all just completely amnesic films that are just like every other film. And then you've got Joker sitting on this list. And that became part of the cultural conversation. And it mattered that that film was out and it scared people and it provoked people. It was reminiscent of what it must have been like in the 70s when a film like Taxi Driver came out. It wasn't just a critical success, but it was the movie everyone was going to see. Now everyone goes to see these films that are just forgettable and empty and just full of effects and not really with any human beings in sight. So, you know, what we what we want collectively from cinema has changed. Joker was a nice um, hark back to that era where people didn't mind being challenged by the movies they saw. And it's so interesting that they have this film Joker, which has drawn so many comparisons to Taxi Driver, as you've said. But Taxi Driver was an original piece. It was uh, an original character. It wasn't reliant upon a comic book character. It wasn't reliant upon the legacy and the history of that character. But these days, 40 years later, uh, 45 years later after Taxi Driver, we are in this world where... Uh, superhero movies dominate they dominate the box office they dominate the discussion when we talk about cinema and so to release this film in that current climate of cinema is interesting in itself (laughs) well yeah that that is kind of subversive in and of itself the fact that you would do that right now to people because i think so many people went into joker expecting one thing and they just got another thing yeah i mean it's the anti-superhero superhero film Just as Christopher Nolan's Batman series of films kind of fit that description previously, it was certainly a lot darker than the Marvel films that were being made at the time, the the Spider-Mans and the X-Men's. So it's something maybe about these characters and the world that they inhabit that kind of lends itself to this dark philosophical content. She was a sick woman. Don't say that. Just go. Before you make a fool of yourself. Thomas Wayne is my father. It was just interesting how when we think of the Joker, we think of this sort of powerful criminal mastermind. But what we get in Joker is a man who's totally disenfranchised and powerless and has nothing. But that's what makes him scary. It's sort of the opposite of what traditionally makes Joker scary, is that this guy is totally powerless, and so then he's kind of desperate, like a starved dog, almost. And it was just unexpected. So, let's go to number three. Okay. Uh, my third best movie of the year was Parasite. What was yours? Mine was Pain and Glory. Well, I think we might leave our discussion of Parasite for just a little bit. And we'll talk about Pain and Glory now, because that's actually on my list at number two. I'll let you start. Well, Pain and Glory is uh, a film that is directed by Pedro Almodovar, who's had a you know, very, very long career. Uh, he doesn't have the audience he deserves because his films are all Spanish. 
and it stars Antonio Banderas and he plays a retired film director battling depression and chronic pain who through a series of reminiscences and chance encounters is able to reconcile his past and come to terms with his future. It's a beautiful film. It's very vivid, very colourful, very sensuous. Given the grim subject matter, it's surprisingly joyful. It's a very, very satisfying film aesthetically. On top of that, you have Almodovar's words, which are very astute, very powerfully observed. And Banderas, whose performance is endlessly appealing. He's so vulnerable. He's like a wounded deer with these beautiful brown eyes that absorb all the erosion going on around him. He also plays the gay love scenes with tremendous conviction and humanity. And there's something very generous in how he does that. The way that he does it without being concerned that it's going to diminish him as this masculine type star, that he remains masculine and gay, and that those two things come out of him so effortlessly. It's just a a very surprising, beautiful film, has the most amazing emotional twist in the last scene. I don't know, what did you think? Well, obviously I loved it. I rated it one one rank higher than you did. And um, I kind of watched it on a whim. We've always loved Pedro Almodovar, always. So uh, I would definitely put Pain and Glory up there with his other best films, which for me are all about my mother and Volver. So I had an emotional reaction to this and also my number one uh, more than any other film this year. And they were really the only two films that I had this emotional reaction to. Yeah, I was reminded while I was watching Pain and Glory of uh, The Irishman again, which I'd watched about a month prior. And just as that felt like Scorsese's swan song to a genre to which he gave so much life and definition, um, so too does Pain and Glory feel like a swan song of sorts. It's, as you said, obviously a semi-autobiographical story. But as well as that, it reunites our mode of our collaborators. Antonio Banderas, this is his eighth film with the director, and Penelope Cruz, and this is her sixth film with the director, which really only adds to its emotional weight. You have the history of those previous collaborations thrown into the mix. You can't look at a movie knowing the actors and the filmmakers so well and look at it completely independently of that history. So as a longtime viewer of our Motivars films, I feel like we've been through it all with all three of these people. And so that just added it to me. And you certainly go through it all again with Banderas, who is simply amazing in his role as uh, Salvador Mallow. And I've honestly never paid too much attention to Banderas before. He's always been kind of perfectly serviceable and sometimes very good. But I never knew he had it in him to perform this. And I think this is like a role of a lifetime. Well, I don't think we do think of Antonio Banderas as a particularly good actor. We don't. He's a movie star. He's not an actor. Yeah. But, I mean, that's bullshit as it turns out. I mean, he's just amazing in this. Amazing. I like my jaw dropped at how good he is in this movie. And um, I I just have to kind of bring up what you brought up before. Uh, There is that scene with Eduardo. And he is the most insanely beautiful person I think I've ever seen. He's played by Cesar Vicente, who is in his first um, film role. He's washing himself naked in young Salvador's family home after labouring. And um, while my jaw may have hit the floor over Banderas' performance, something else certainly moved during that scene. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, that, that, was, that was an amazing scene. But there are probably about five scenes in this film that are really special. It's told in this non-linear fashion, which really just adds to it. And then there's a bit of a surprise at the end in that final shot that, you know, pans away. 
Yeah, that's what I was talking about. That's the emotional twist. Yeah. And I, I don't want to say too much about it in case our listeners haven't seen it yet mm. and, and are interested in doing so. I mean, the, the movie is such an optimistic film. The first half hour, you see a man whose life is just empty and filled with nothing but pain and loneliness. And he starts taking heroin. And you think, oh, God, this film's going to be this awful descent into addiction. And it isn't. It's actually about somebody who starts at the bottom and then finds a way of coping older, uh, more tired, with, with more challenges than he's ever had in his life. I mean, he's got like a bucket list of the illnesses wrong with him. He's got a lump in his throat which stops him from breathing. He's got a disc in his back that makes him largely immobile. Tension headaches and, you know, all kinds of other headaches. He's... But that's another thing that was clever is that it's not like he has leukaemia. It's not like he has something really he's, unusual. He's got the ailments of life. He's got the ailments of old age. And that is such a slight focus of the movie, but it's a drive throughout the movie as well, that story of his illnesses. So that's not the focus of the movie, but it does drive the narrative. And it's been made with such care right down to, I mean, Amaldivar's handling of every scene is so carefully uh, considered, but also Banderas. I mean, watching him get out of a cab, mm. you can see that there's pain there. You know, it's extraordinary what he does. Uh, he, he's, his level of focus with this character, it's... It's a great, great film. I think the number of people who saw it was reflected because Antonio Banderas got an acting nomination for Pain and Glory and the ovation that he got during the announcement of that nomination at the Oscar ceremony was um, quite large. Yeah. So, you know, it was, uh, it was a highly revered role. Look, I think in a year that didn't have Wacken Phoenix in Joker, he would have been a lot. Yeah. In Dolori Gloria, you play this aging, ailing director. Could you in any way identify with the aging and ailing a bit? <laughs> no, but, um, but I have to just uh, realize and confront something. The years passed that I am a little bit more than a year from being 60. The life has given me some advices. Some of them came in the, in, in the form of a sickness. I had a heart attack three years ago, and which is probably one of the best things that happened to me as an actor, because it taught me something about life and about the importance of important things and the stupidities that sometimes you are just worried about. And this movie came to me at the right moment, at the right time, because Pedro, who is a very difficult, complicated, meticulous, strong director, doesn't allow you to use the tools that you use to be secure and safe in front of a camera. No, because he thinks that those are tricks, and tricks are not in creation. In creation should be a place where we are all in risk, we are creating from nothing, from the scratch, and you don't use tricks, you use life, you use yourself. So, Can you give an example of that? Well, an example of that is my work itself. <laughs> I don't look like Antonio Banderas in this movie, which is great. Well, that was my number two film, so what was yours? My number two film is Little Women. And it's kind of bizarre to have this film and Joker on the same list because they are completely opposite 
you know, while Joker is world-hating and people-hating, Little Women is a celebration of the world and of people. And where Joker is cynical and nihilistic, Little Women is earnest and hopeful. It's almost absurdly earnest. I remember when it first started, the score was so bright and orchestral that it almost bordered on parody. And I thought, wait a minute, is she being is she being serious here? This film suddenly feels like it's been taken out of the early 90s. It's the fifth major release adaptation of Little Women, following Gillian Armstrong's excellent 1994 version starring Winona Ryder, which I've always loved. And so I went in with such trepidation because I thought, what on earth are they going to do with this material? I mean, I love the story. I expect that it'll just be nice, the same story with different characters, maybe a little bit updated. But it actually mines new insight. And the way that Greta Gerwig does that is she redevelops the material into a non-linear structure. So the film is more a celebration of the act of writing and the creative process than any of the other films. I didn't even know that that was in the story because obviously Joe March, who's the lead character, is a writer. And what it does is she structures it so that you can see how the experiences that Joe has throughout her life are translated into her work. It's not done in the film anywhere more effectively than in the last 10 minutes, because the main tension in the film is Joe's resistance to getting married and being a wife and that being sort of a prison sentence, and it meaning that she has to forego all of the things that she wants to do as an independent person that marriage will preclude her from doing. You know, she's taking her manuscript to the publishers and they're like, this is all really good, but why doesn't she get a husband? Why isn't she married in the end? It's interesting that that conversation is juxtaposed with the one that Jo keeps having in her life from her grandma, from everybody, all this pressure to get married. And then, of course, love does come her way and she's resisting it because for her, it's synonymous with giving up her independence, giving up her writing. That's a message that's more timely now than ever or is as timely now as it's ever been. It's helped by uh, Saoirse Ronan as Joe, endlessly watchable actress, no doubt going to be the actress that it becomes the kind of Meryl Streep of the new generation. She's going to win Oscars. She's going to get nominated. She's already been nominated a shitload of times and she's barely 30. I don't even know if she is 30. The other thing that Gerwig does is with Amy March, who's the least sympathetic of the sisters, um, she really fleshes her out and she turns her into a far more probable character. She's also played by Florence Pugh, who um, we all kind of stood up and paid attention to when she was in Midsummer last year. But yeah, by toying around with the structure and fleshing out the supporting characters, she really does make the story new without losing the sentimentality and inherent sweetness of uh, Louisa May Alcott's novel. Excellent. I haven't seen that one. Um, and the reason that we had to stand up and pay attention in Midsummer is because it was so boring. <laughs> no, you know what? <laughs> I, I didn't hate it. It's a challenging film. I feel like it was similar to Suspiria the year before. 
No. Suspiria was a lot better, I think. I think I probably liked Suspiria more, but I, I know that I probably will go back and watch Midsummer again. Yeah, I will as well. It was just it was just an effort. And then he released a director's cut with 30-odd minutes of extra footage. It's like, that's not what you need, mate. You need less. All right, Damien, I'm ready for your number one. Okay, well, my best film was Noah Baumbach's Marriage Story. There are so many reasons I fell in love with this film, but first and foremost was the honest and often heartbreaking depiction of a marriage falling apart, given by Scarlett Johansson, Adam, Dr- Adam Driver, and Baumbach, who wrote and directed. So Adam Driver in this film is the other male performance that I was referencing, along with Joaquin Phoenix and Antonio Banderas that I found sublime last year. And Johansson here was my favourite female performance, and I wish she'd won the Oscar. This is a film of moments, and it's written that way. It's told in a non-linear fashion, flashing between the two characters building their relationship and the present disintegration of it. Even in the beginning of the movie, they're, they're talking about why they fell in love with somebody. They're talking about all of the good things about this person. And then the next shot is them on the downslope. So there's some standout scenes in here, such as that fight in Driver's new LA apartment and his singing of Sondheim's Being Alive, which I just went back and watched last night, and it's as affecting by itself. There's a particularly touching scene at the end of the film that had me absolutely bawling, and it's all in Adam Driver's face. And I don't even mind that he didn't win the Academy Award this year because I feel like he has about 10 in his future. Yeah, he's amazing. He's amazing. I feel like my my thoughts about Marriage Story can be summed up by simply singing, Somebody hold me too close. Belt it out, Luke. No. Being alive! <laughs> well, you definitely shouldn't belt it out because, you know, our listeners are suffering enough with COVID. They don't need your <laughs> fucking tone-deaf tones in their ear. Tone deaf tone. No, I thought Marriage Story was great. So Marriage Story didn't make your top five and didn't make your honourable mentions. Only because I knew you were going to bring it up. <laughs> but absolutely, I thought it was great. I thought it was beautiful. I think Adam Driver is amazing. Scarlett Johansson is amazing. I Obviously, it's drawn a lot of comparisons with Kramer versus Kramer. I think Kramer versus Kramer is altogether a better film. The problem that I had with Marriage Story was all the supporting characters. The two lead characters were fantastic and you're right the way it opens with that scene (laughs) which is so disarming that he's reading out this list about the things he loves about her and then it just cuts very jarringly to them in a discussion with a therapist about how they're going to manage their divorce amicably given that they have a small child it's really really powerful the being alive scene has no right to work as well as it does because it's sort of absurd that he would be sitting in a uh, cafeteria or a, or a bar uh, and would just take the mic and would start singing, but it works. And the um, scene where they're screaming at each other is almost unbearable. And the things they say are so cruel. Bornbach is very, very good at incisive cutting dialogue. He has been ever since Squid and the Whale came out. But also that scene where they're yelling at each other and he says the most reprehensible thing she hugs him afterwards. He breaks down crying. This is what a relationship is. Yeah. This is this is what it is. You 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 hate someone but you love them. You care about them, you want them gone. You know, all of those kind of dichotomous feelings. Yeah. And uh, Marriage Story showed it so well. And yes, there are there's been a lot of talk about similarities between Marriage Story and Kramer versus Kramer and I definitely think that they're there. And while the latter film definite uh, deals with mostly the raising of a child and the issue of custody rather than divorce. Both films are so accurate in the way they portray the human condition and the isolation that we so often feel, most of all. 
And they both deal with one person leaving a relationship and moving across the country. In both cases, it's leaving New York for California, which I think adds a huge element of both doubt and difficulty in those situations. But both films are all also very individual experiences, and I don't note that there are these similarities, and I don't take that other people have noted these similarities as a mark against marriage story, because I think it's... If anything, it's an honour to echo Kramer versus Kramer while carving out your own niche. No, I agree. I just think that it's just natural to compare them because they feel the same and they both explore the same territory, which is uh, a woman's role and a man's role inside the dynamics of a, of a relationship, of a long-term relationship. And then there's obviously the little child and that complicating things. Mm. One of the bonuses of Kramer versus Kramer is that they got one of the best child performances uh, and that is missing from Marriage Story. So, yeah, Marriage Story has a little bit of, who's this guy? He's a theatre director who's able to afford a very expensive lawyer. I mean, these this is kind of white person problems. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> also, the supporting um, performances in Kramer versus Kramer are far more astute. Like his, his friend who he mm. knows at the park, Dustin Hoffman's friend in it. I can't remember who. But anyway, the those individual scenes are better. I mean, Scarlett Johansson's mother and sister, and even Laura Dern to an extent, <clears throat> for me, are detractors. Um, I mean, I'm with you on Laura Dern. I didn't think hugely of her performance. I thought it was a good performance. I didn't think it was a great performance. I thought it was a typical supporting performance. But I don't was... think Laura Dern gives bad performances. No, I just don't think it was special. But the buzz was around her and she won the Oscar, which kind of, for me, comes out of nowhere because I didn't think heaps of the performance. Well, I'll tell you where it comes out of. It comes out of Big Little Lies hmm. because that's essentially what she was playing Renata. And we all loved Renata. And so I think she won the Oscar for the TV show through the movie. But she's back in a big way. And I love Laura Dern. So, you know, the fact that she's back through Big Little Lies and now the Oscar, that's only a good thing. What did you think of Scarlett Johansson's performance? Because for me, that was like probably my favourite takeaway from the movie was that Scarlett Johansson, sorry, takeaway from the year was that Scarlett Johansson had done what she did in Lost in Translation, which obviously for me is a pretty big film. Yeah, I mean, I think she's fantastic. You're right. It was a reminder of how thrilling it is to have her in a good film and how charismatic and talented she is as a, as a, not only as an actress, but as a star. And uh, no, I loved her. And also she was in Jojo Rabbit, which uh, is another film that I thought was quite good, not great. I thought there were problems with it, but certainly she's great in it. With those two performances, amazing. Weird, like, when I think of this year, I think of Scarlett Johansson and Shoelaces. Because uh, in Marriage Story, obviously it ends in that really touching moment where she does up his shoelace. And I loved that. Uh, and that scene said so much with just the deftest, tiniest touch about how he'd come to need her and what it would be like moving on without that support, you know, Oh, heartbreaking. Even thinking of it now is heartbreaking, but um, in Jojo rabbit shoelaces play a really important, there's a particularly important scene with Scarlett Johansson's shoelaces. Uh, and so it's just strange that it's sort of like Jennifer Connelly on the pier mm. type thing where, you know, this actress is <laughs> has these echoes through these movies of being connotated in certain ways. Jennifer Connelly on the pier. Yeah. Because remember, she did um, Requiem for a Dream. And then, of course, House of Sand and Fog, it ends with her on the pier. Yeah. Uh, there might even be another that I'm forgetting. But 
I feel like there was three, yeah. Yeah. Three Jennifer Connellys on the pier in pretty much the same framing. Yeah. So, no, I thought she was great. I mean, I think it was ultimately Adam Driver's film. The story, by necessity, was framed more around him. Uh, And we saw Scarlet mostly through his perception of her and his encounters with her. But um, I would not have her in it. And I'll always remember her in it. What was uh, your best film of the year? Well, it's almost boring, but the minute that I saw it, I thought it was the best film. It's It was, you know how you talked about you didn't have that moment where you were set alight by a movie last year? This is the movie that did that for me. And it really had no right to because I was on a long haul flight and I was watching it in the middle of the night. I was exhausted. I was jet lagged. I was scared that I was going to crash into the sea. And yet for a good solid two hours, I totally forgot myself because I was so riveted by it. And that's... um, Don't keep us in suspense, Luke. (laughs) (laughs) Bong Joon-ho's Parasite. Can you do that again? Bong Joon-ho? Yes, that's better. I don't know. Sorry if I've got that wrong. So the film, in case you don't know, is about a poor but very resourceful family who, by means of deception and cruelty, begin living off of a wealthy family by insidiously securing domestic positions for themselves within the household. (laughs) What's brilliant about that synopsis is that the political commentary about classism and the disparity of wealth is intrinsically built into the narrative. So the film doesn't need to comment on it. And it doesn't. What the film does is create an engaging, often uncomfortable, very funny, very tense mood and sustains that through the whole two hours and you really don't know where this is going to go and it just continually surprises you. The other thing that's built into the narrative is this idea that one family earns enough to support two while other families are starving to death in basement homes that get flooded with shit. It's just very, very vicious and says so much about, that's critical, about how we live and um, how we really aren't each other's friends and aren't really each other's support systems. It's also a film where no, it's a foreign film where no work is required. It's so inventively menacing all the time that it comes at us like a page-turning thriller. It never editorialises, as I've said. We're free to interpret what we see in any number of ways. There's nothing prescriptive about it. But the emotional impact is so intense all the time. There are no bad guys and no good guys. There are just people in varying states of desperation whose actions are all about survival. It's such sophisticated storytelling. I'd just like to read what um, Bong Joon-ho I said that right? Yeah, that was good. What he said about the title of the film, which I hadn't considered, and I just ripped this off of Wikipedia, so please don't be impressed by my researching skills. Because the story is about the poor family infiltrating and creeping into the rich house, it seems very obvious that Parasite refers to the poor family, and I think that's why the marketing team were a little hesitant. But if you look at it the other way, you could say that the rich family are also parasites in terms of labour. They can't wash their dishes, they can't drive themselves, so they leech off the poor family's labour... So both are parasites. And I thought, wow, that's just another beautiful example of how rich this film is. Uh, it was nominated for six Oscars. It won four, including rather infamously Best Picture. The other thing that was interesting was that Bong Joon-ho and Han Jin-won were the first Asians in history to win Best Original Screenplay Oscar. That seemed insane to me. It's got 99% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes. 99%. So that is the highest of any of the films that we've talked about today. Mm. 
Yeah, Parasite, uh, we've spoken about it before. It's one of those rare non-English language films that makes a mark in English-speaking countries, and probably more so than anything I can think of for a very long time. It's part drama, part thriller, all social commentary, and it blends all of those facets seamlessly. For it to break through and win Best Picture is a tremendous feat, especially with Hollywood usually so self-aggrandizing. So I had this at number three, you, had a, you have it at number one, um, which is why I said that we'll talk about it later. Arguably, it's the biggest story of the year in cinema. Yeah, I think next to Joker, only because Joker was seen so widely. But I agree, certainly it's a film that entered the zeitgeist and became something people were talking about. I remember telling you I actually found the film very physically uncomfortable to watch, um, which I was surprised by. But that's clearly because of the class distinctions that the film portrays, which are very genuine in a society that blends the super rich with those living below the poverty line. And not only do the Kims live below the poverty line, but they literally live below the city. Out of mind, out of sight. And uh, there's some, you know, great depictions of this class war for me. One of them was um, at one point they're excited that the council is fumigating the buildings on their street and they decide to leave their window open because, well, free fumigation. (laughs) And they leech the Wi-Fi signal from the restaurant upstairs, even if it means sitting in the cramped toilet space in their basement apartment to use it. Uh, The goal is to be connected to the internet so they can use WhatsApp. The people they work for have different goals, like their daughter learning to speak English so she can attend an American university, and their son, who they believe to be an artistic prodigy, honing his so-called gift. So it's difficult to blame the Kims for what they do. It is, and the mother is so credulous, and clearly a trophy right, a trophy wife for the husband. And there's really perverse scenes, like the scene where they're, um, they come home early from their camping trip and the family are all under the coffee table and they start to have sex and what's getting them off is talking about them being poor and like the, the dirty underwear that he found under the, um, under the car seat that was planted there by the daughter and, you know, telling her that, you know, she's like a dirty slut that the rich would find a kind of eroticism in that the slum-like way that this other family are living and that the poor family that are giving them their jollies are under the coffee table listening to it. And in that scene also, I mean, it just shows the difference between what a rich parent is able to do for a child than, uh, than what a pet poor parent is able to do. So in this film, essentially the, the, the children, they luck into this situation. So they're supporting the family for a little while. The Kims, that is. So with the parks, the adults stop everything just so they can watch their son out in a tent in that scene. And, you know, they refuse to go up to their bedroom. It shows kind of just all of those little things that one set of people is not able to do and the other set of people is able to do. Yeah. And they're able to do it off the backs of the people who can't. Yeah. I'm going to discuss a little bit of a spoiler here, but it's not its not the conclusion to the movie. But I love it when the first big twist comes, which is where it's revealed that the former housekeeper, Moon Guang, was also using this rich Park family for her own personal game, which was housing her husband in the basement of the mansion and feeding him daily. So, essentially, the Kims have inadvertently fucked over one of their own. <laughs> yeah. And in one of the film's final scenes, the father, Kai Tech, gives the family 
the former housekeeper a respectful burial in the home's garden, which is a, quite a nice touch. Yeah, absolutely. I love the movie Parasite. Um, it is one of the best films of the year. You directed it and co-wrote this film. I went in not knowing what the movie was about and uh, uh, just heard buzz that this was great. And I loved it. I, I loved it because I don't want to spoil anything. It's hard yeah. to describe the movie. Yeah. How, how do you describe Parasite? 뭐 나도 여기서 되도록 말을 안 하고 싶어요. 스토리를 모르고 가서 봐야 재밌거든요. I'd like to say as little as possible here because the film is best when you go into it cold. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> well, this is not a talk show, yeah, so yeah. you have to <laughs> say something. <laughs> 가족 가족 얘기예요. 가난한 가족 애가 부자 집에 과외하러 가면서 이제 벌어지는 얘기. It's a story about family. Uh, uh, the son goes into a rich house as a tutor, and the story unfolds from there. Oh, just knockout performance. You just oh, you, you feel you feel sad for them, uh, and then they make you laugh, yeah. and then they're in trouble. And you go, oh, oh, Don, this is bad. I mean, seriously, you go through all these, and then yeah. that's just the first kind of half. Then you're very human, yeah. It's just a funny and scary movie. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that's our top five. So just to recap, do you want to go through them again? Uh, from number five, I had The Last Black Man in San Francisco, Joker, Parasite, Pain and Glory, and my number one was Marriage Story. Mine were 1917, Joker, Pain and Glory, Little Women, and Parasite. And our top ten are on our letterbox pages, so by all means go and have a look if you're, if you're so inclined. So we talked about what was the first movie you watched earlier. What was the last movie you watched in 2019? Bombshell. Ditto. <laughs> Since we're in the same session at a New Year's Eve session. We caught an advanced screening here in little old Adelaide. At least I bookended the year with some pretty great films, even if I didn't watch anywhere near as much as you. Yeah, Bombshell was an interesting movie. Definitely um, had uh, had moments that were great. feel like it was slightly undone by how it was done stylistically. But, you know, still I thought it was a very interesting movie to watch. Good performances. Definitely. And it was interesting to see all of those um, actresses together. So much fun. I too wish it hadn't necessarily been directed by Adam McKay but you take what you can get (laughs) yeah well that's it for our yearly review and we thank you for joining us we know it's been a while but we'll be back really soon with our next episode so please stay with us before we go I'd like to make special mention of our new friend Jaws over in Norway who sent us a lovely Christmas card and a gift of some of her art it was very much appreciated Recording this podcast has been and continues to be a huge joy for both of us, and knowing that there are people who enjoy listening makes it all worthwhile. So to everybody listening right now, thank you. See you later. Someone to hold you too close. Someone to hurt you too deep. Someone to sit in your chair, to ruin your sleep. That's true, but there's more than that. Is that all you think there is to it? You have so many reasons for not being with someone, Robert, but you have one good reason for being alone. <laughs> Come on, you're under something. Maybe you're under something. Someone to need you too much. Someone to know you too well. Someone to pull you up short, to put you through hell. You see what you look for, you know? You're not a kid anymore, Robbie. I don't think I'll ever be a kid again, kiddo. Being alive. Being Life being alone. Hello.
blow out the candles, Robert, and make a wish. Want something. Want something. Somebody hold me too close. Somebody hurt me too deep. Somebody sit in my chair and ruin my sleep and make me aware of being alive, being alive. Somebody need me too much. Somebody know me too well. Somebody pull me up short and put me through hell and give me support for being alive. Make me alive. Make me alive. Make me confused. Mock me with praise. Let me be you. But alone is alone, not alive. Somebody crowd me with love, somebody force me to care, somebody make me come through, I'll always be there, as frightened as you to help us survive, being alive.